Good evening. Let me add to Mark's welcome. Lovely to have you with us. And we're turning to the Word of God. And we are uh, in the early stages of a new series here in Hebron. We're looking at uh, the attributes of God. And um, tentatively, we've labeled this series Knowing God, Knowing Myself. And uh, part of the inspiration for that title comes from something John Calvin wrote in the opening words of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says something along these lines. He says that the the two most important things that a human being can ever know are these, to know God and to know themselves. And he then has a small discussion about which of those comes first. Do you know yourself first or do you know God first? And then he writes these wonderful lines. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. And that makes a lot of sense if you stop and think about it. Because it's telling us that God is the standard by which all things are judged. You could, for example, compare yourself to me But part of the problem with that is that I might not be the same tomorrow or the next day, just as I wasn't perhaps the same yesterday or today. I'm shifting, I'm changing, I'm changeable, and sometimes I relish changing. And that's not much of a reliable thing for you to compare yourself to. You need a fixed standard, something that is objectively true and right. And when we look to God, when we look upon the one who is unlike us in so many ways, that's what we find. We saw last week that God is eternal and unchanging. And when we descend from contemplating that and we scrutinize ourselves, well, we find one thing just screams out at us. I am not God. We are just a breath that is here today and gone tomorrow. And tonight we look at another attribute of God, that we might know him, that we might know ourselves more clearly. And I think before we get into it, it's worth worth pondering why God has revealed himself to us. I mean, why are we able to have these sorts of of discussions where we say, what, what is God like? Well, how do we know what God is like? We only know because he has told us. I mean, if we were just left to our own devices, we would not know anything about God. But God has disclosed to us who he is. He has given us a revelation. And one of my favorite definitions of that at the moment goes like this. Revelation is a divinely initiated activity God's free communication by which he alone turns his personal privacy into a deliberate disclosure of his reality. In other words, things that he has every right to keep private, he has revealed to us. But we have to ask, why why does he bother? Is it just to torment us so that we can realize day after day how different he is from us? Well, it's so that we might know him. So that we might be brought into a relationship with him. And so tonight we marvel some more at who God is. 
And the fact that God has bothered to be concerned with folks like us as we consider tonight God's self-sufficiency. And to help us in that, we're going to start by reading some verses in Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, turn with me there. These words will appear on the screen behind me. In Acts 17, Paul comes into Athens, and here he is with these new ideas, this gospel message. And the people who love to debate philosophical ideas in Athens, they invite Paul to come and to debate with them. And we're going to read um, um, what he says on that occasion. We're going to read from verse 22. And you bear in mind that this is a different audience for Paul. Often he would go into the synagogues and all the Jewish hearers would have a lot of presuppositions about God that were true and that Paul could build on. Not so here. These are not Jews. These are, these are pagans. So what does Paul say to them about God? Verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we not ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Amen. It is surely impossible for us to imagine a being that is not dependent upon something. Because that is all that we have ever known. All life is dependent upon something. Whether it be oxygen or hydration or an energy supply or even social interaction. All of these things are needed to survive and to flourish. Indeed, our needs are very revealing. Because they reveal our weaknesses. They show up the areas where we need other things to make up for what we lack. And this has a practical outworking as well. Human beings need food and water. And so it should come as no surprise that as human settlements started to grow, that they settled on fertile land. They settled in areas where there were good water supplies. They did not try and settle, first of all, at the top of Mount Everest or at the bottom of the ocean. Why? Because our needs drive our decision-making. We make decisions based on the needs that we have. One of the afflictions that we have as fallen human beings, of course, is that we often convince ourselves that we have needs that we don't really have. And we make some terrible decisions on the back of those. I need to be with that person. 
I need to get that job. I need that money. I need those likes and retweets. It's hard to believe that anything could have no needs. Yet how refreshing it is to consider God. And think about what it means for us that God needs nothing. God needs nothing outside of himself. For he is utterly self-sufficient. Now when we say that God is self-sufficient, we're saying that he is utterly independent of everything. He does not need anything or anyone to be God. But it's more than that. I mean, for example, I could say to you, I do not need breakfast tomorrow morning. And that is true. I do not need it. There is evidence to suggest that. But what I am saying is I don't need breakfast tomorrow, but I will be miserable without it until lunchtime. But when we say that God is self-sufficient, that he doesn't need anything, he is not only self-sufficient, he is entirely self-satisfied. It's not some miserable existence living without these needs. He needs nothing. He is entirely self-satisfied in who he is. Everything that he could ever need and desire, he is. And as we thought last week, um, that does not and it cannot change. He is, as Paul put it to these Athenians, the God who made the world and everything in it, the one who does not live in temples made by man, who is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And you see that emphasis of Paul's here is that far from God having any needs, unlike these uh, pagans who thought that uh, they needed to fashion uh, this idol, they needed to build this temple, God needed these things. Paul says God needs nothing. And he certainly does not need the weak efforts of human hands. But he is the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And this is the significant difference between the creator and the creature. Uh, Jesus makes this point in John 5 when he says, The Father has life in himself. That is something that can be uniquely said of God. He has life in himself. None other has that. I mean, we of course have life, but the life we have has been gifted to us from the one who is the originator of life, who has life in himself. No one gave him that life. No one gifted him that life. He has life in himself, and that is not like any other being we know. And John, in his gospel, he doesn't hesitate to describe Jesus Christ in those same sort of terms. In the opening words of John's gospel, he speaks of Jesus the Word and says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. A very helpful book on uh, understanding or, or on the doctrine of God is a book entitled The Doctrine of God by John Frame. And when it comes to this subject, he sets forth a number of, uh, of, of propositions that you can work through in sequence just to show us what we're really getting at on this subject of God's self-sufficiency. Let me, let me walk you through a simplified list of those. First of all, God owns 
everything. And who would deny that? God owns everything. He is, uh, as the scriptures put it, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. Therefore, everything that is possessed by us or by any of his creatures comes from God. So, when we give something to God, all we are really doing is giving to him what he first gave to us. Therefore, when we give something to God, we do not put God in our debt. You find this question uh, comes from God in the, uh, towards the end of the book of Job. He says, who has first given to me? Who has first given to me? And that's the very point, isn't it? There is nothing that we could give to God because everything we have, he has first given to us. So the great conclusion is, if that's the case, then God has no needs and is therefore independent. He is self-sufficient. One of the classic ways in which the Bible presents this, and something Paul does in Acts 17, which we've just read, is to show how utterly different the living, self-sufficient God is to all other so-called gods. Um, If you have a Bible, you would like to enjoy turning to Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40. This is really one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture. I think it's passages like this that maybe John Calvin had in mind when he said, you you look into the face of God and then look down and scrutinize ourselves. It is a great passage where the the prophet lays out all of these questions um, to just ask God's people to think about the magnitude of who God is and what God is. And then you come to verse 18 of chapter 40, and he asks this question. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Well, let's look at the option. Read on. Verse 19. An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you see the contrast here? The idol is dependent upon man. It needs human intervention for its existence. It needs human ingenuity and creativity. It requires human knowledge of which woods will rot and which ones will not. Get that decision wrong and your God will disintegrate before you. This is in contrast to the true God who needs nothing but is needed by all. And so when God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, he did not do it to make up for something that he lacked. And this is one of the reasons why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important for us in grasping who God is. Because it helps us to understand how God can be self-sufficient. Before there was anything created, God was self-sufficiently self-satisfied in himself you see God did not need to create anything to be God because God has always existed in relationship 
the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, coexisting together in this perfect unity of love, of self-giving for all eternity. This is why God is self-sufficient and self-satisfied, because he has everything there. And these three persons united together in perfect, holy, eternal relationship. Everything that God needs is already there. And so this is what the Bible reveals about God. And it's more than just an, oh right, that's interesting kind of thing. The truth is, we need a God who is self-sufficient. You don't really want to be found worshipping anything else. As I mentioned at the start, our needs reveal our weaknesses and our limitations. To have weaknesses is to be vulnerable. It's because God has no needs that God can never be vulnerable. It is because God has no needs that God can never be tempted in any way. If God already has everything in himself that he needs... What is there that he could possibly ever be tempted with? And if we had an understanding of God that found some need that he has, something he was dependent upon, and I I notice that if you ever come across these sorts of theologies, the thing that he's always dependent upon is human beings, then we have a very dangerous theology. Because we have a God who can be tempted And be influenced to change. Because if he needs us, then we hold some leverage over him, don't we? You cannot worship a God like that. You should worship the one who he needs. No, we need the God of the Bible. Who is unchanging, self-sufficient, therefore is reliable. Now, with that foundation, I want to look at another passage and and really just press home why this is such an important thing for us to grasp about who God is. We're going to turn to the New Testament, to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Probably the the best-known verses in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 2. And just again, to set the context of this, it will become clear. Paul is encouraging the Philippian Christians towards greater unity. And the way of unity uh, he outlines here. So let me read these. Verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul sets forth Jesus Christ as the supreme example of how you can foster unity in the local church. Unity requires humility. And Jesus Christ is the supreme example of humility. I just want to zero in on a couple of things here. And first of all, so you see that in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or some other translations have, which was also in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 6 at the starting point for understanding the extent of Christ's humiliation. Jesus is described as being in the form of God. He's described as possessing equality with God. Now let's just think about that in the sort of terms we've been thinking about tonight. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, before the world was created, possessed all the attributes of God. He was utterly self-sufficient in the Godhead with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He needed nothing. He was self-sufficient and self-satisfied just as he was. But look, despite the highest of places that the Son of God occupied, what did he do? Verse 6 again, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea of that is he didn't, he didn't count it as a thing to be held on to tightly for his own ends. But, verse 7, made himself nothing or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He became a human being. And Paul goes on to say he, he became a human being who took the lowest rung in society. A human being who suffered death. Who even suffered death on a cross. Now why would one who was self-sufficient and entirely self-satisfied choose to make a decision like that? Because you see, God is not like us. And the very thing that Paul is urging these Christians to do in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, boy, is that modeled in Christ. Who we see became a man, not because he needed to, but because he looked on at your needs and saw that you needed him to. And here we start to see how this doctrine of the self-sufficiency of God really helps us to see the beauty of the gospel. Helps us to see that when we use that word grace, we're not speaking about something that is light, but that the self-sufficient, self-satisfied God looked on at your needs. Not his own needs. He didn't have any needs. But he stepped out of that world of self-sufficient glory to become a man, to suffer, to be crucified, to save sinners like us. We need to grasp this. Because, you know, we have, we have no right to the gospel. 
No right even for the gospel to exist at all. And so to speak, as we look upon the face of God and again are confronted with his utter self-sufficiency, we look down and we scrutinize ourselves and we have to scrutinize that word grace. God did not need to create this world. He did not need to create human beings in his own image. And when they fell, he most certainly did not need to send his son to be our savior. But this is what he has done. The self-sufficient God, he loves undeserving sinners. And he gives himself to rescue them. Oh, that that would blow our minds. But there's more. And we know there's more. Because it's not just that God saves us purely because of his grace, but he then uses us to bring others to know him. Some might be tempted to argue that this is an example of how God does have needs. He does need human beings. He needs Christians to share the message with others if the church is to grow and if the elect are to be brought to faith. And you can see why people might think that. But we know it's not true. We know that it's not true that God needs us. I mean, even just think, for example, of how God reached Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. How the ascended Jesus Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road and spoke to him directly. Would we be so quick to say that God needs us for his work of salvation? No, it's far better than that. If God needed us, that's rubbish. Because what a letdown. What a letdown we would be. No, better by far is this. God chooses to use us. God chooses to use you in this great work of making Jesus Christ known. We're privileged. And it's just as if, if, if one day the, the, the person in your field of work, or, or, or even if the, the, the Queen of England came and gave you a special task, not because she needed it, but because she chose you and she wanted you to do it, then it would be a privilege. That is just what the self-sufficient, self-satisfied God has done. You know, studying these attributes of God reveals what we're like because we have an old problem. Um, something that dates back, way back to the beginning of human, human beings. We desire to be God. That is our default position. We want to be God. We want to displace him and be our own God. You may recall when the serpent successfully tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3, it was by luring her with these words. God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is the same spirit that appeals to human hearts today. To be told, you can be like God. And when it comes to something like this attribute of God, boy, do we love to think we're self-sufficient. Let me change that. Boy, do I love 
to think I'm self-sufficient. And maybe I'll change it again. Boy, do I love you to think that I'm self-sufficient. Because that's what we've been doing since the Garden of Eden, folks. We have been trying to attribute the attributes of God to ourselves. Our society thinks being dependent is a failure. If you're dependent on your parents or dependent on the state or dependent on others in almost any way at all, if you ever make it onto the tea time news, you're presented as a sympathy case. Someone to be pitied. Look at this poor soul having to depend upon. Being dependent is not something that is admired. We love and we cherish self-sufficiency. But unfortunately, our desires to be self-sufficient lead us to cease being dependent upon God. And that's when they really are a problem. When we think we are self-sufficient and we can no longer, no longer need to be dependent upon God. When we do that, we displace him. And we set ourselves up as God instead. When all of life was created to be dependent upon God, and even think about it before the fall, Adam and Eve were to be dependent upon God. Well, the marks of this sinful sort of self-sufficiency, when you stop and think about it, are really quite obvious. And sad to say, are prevalent in my own heart. And it is probably the case that, I don't know, maybe this is just me, the longer you've been a Christian, the greater the temptation to put on an air of self-sufficiency. And especially when you're given some sort of responsibility in the church and people maybe from time to time look up to you, there can be a tendency to try and put on an air of self-sufficiency. And what tends to happen, without exception, is the first sign is a lack of prayer in our lives. It's a sure sign that we're self-sufficient. Because, of course, prayer is an expression of need. Prayer is us coming into the presence of God to tell him how much we need him, how much we depend upon him, how much we need to be in his presence, that we need to bring our lives before him, and we need him to be at work if we're going to have any spiritual fruit in our own lives or see any spiritual fruit in the lives of others. And when I stop praying, when I don't think it's that important, then I'm showing that I think I'm self-sufficient. I don't need God to do those things. I'll just keep working away and see what I can do. But there's more than that. When things don't go to plan, when we come up against some hardships, maybe even an illness, our lives fall upon some sort of misfortune, we don't view those as a chance to trust the Lord. Instead, we resent it. And we even dare to resent God because he has again threatened my self-sufficiency. How dare this thing come into my life and force me to seek help from someone else? I hate it. That is the sin of self-sufficiency. That is setting myself up in the place of God. There's other things too, isn't there? When we're no longer convicted about our sins, when we think lightly about sinning, 
Isn't that a mark of self-sufficiency? Because, well, what, what do I need to depend upon Christ and his cross work for? There is a great joy to be found in knowing that it's only God who is self-sufficient. It's not always immediately appealing to us. And our culture has a lot to blame, and a lot of the blame to take for that. We don't like to tell other people that we're struggling. We don't like to tell other people that maybe we need some support and help. How very interesting, even that when Paul describes what the church is in 1 Corinthians 12, and he speaks about all the different giftednesses of the parts of the body of Christ, he says each part needs, needs the other. I feel we've maybe a long way to go, for we capture that sense of, 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 of believing genuinely that it's okay to be dependent upon one another, because we believe that it's how God has designed us to be. To be dependent upon one another, but most supremely of all, to be dependent upon him. The one who has no needs, the one who is self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and who simply because he loved us, not because he had to, he made us. He gave us life. He sent a rescuer to save us from our sins, that we might be with him forever. Is there a more privileged group of people on the face of the earth than those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who know the self-sufficient God? I don't think so. There is no shame in depending upon him. Let's help each other to do that in the days that lie ahead. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that as we've considered who you are and your self-sufficiency, we thank you that this does not make us think that you're far off from us or that you're separated from us or that you're unable to intervene in our world. But Father, it helps us to see that, that you are the unique one and that as you have intervened in this world, that we, we do not confuse you with created things, but we know that you are the uncreated one who has life in himself, entirely self-sufficient, who needs nothing. And oh, that you would show your grace towards us. We say with King David, what is, what is man that you're mindful of him? What are these weak human beings that you take such concern over them? But we want to offer you our praise and our worship tonight for the grace that you have shown. Father, we are sorry for the times when we have, where we have longed to be self-sufficient where we've longed to displace you from the place of worship, where we've tried to be our own gods for our prayerlessness, for our insensitivity to sin, for our hatred of the trial, for our isolation from one another. Oh, Father, help us to see the joy of dependence upon the living God. Bring us afresh to Christ, who alone can bring us to this holy, self-sufficient God. Help us to find that the joy of resting there. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.